Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. everyone welcome to episode 18 of true blue true crime my name's sean and with me as always is my co-host chloe how are you hi good <laughs> i am kind of excited to leave actually though and go and listen to a podcast we were just talking about one of my favorites called law by aaron Mankey. it's about folklore and urban legend and stuff and i played a clip of it to show you his voice yeah. before, and now I just wanted to go. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't heard it before. I'd heard of it, but uh, he had a very soothing voice, that man. So yeah, we'll check it out on the way home. Shattered to hear that you want to leave, but uh, <laughs> anyway, we'll push on. <laughs> yeah, before that. <laughs> we got some Patreon shout-outs this week, Chloe. We do. Welcome and thank you to Madison, Clayton, Hannah Grant, and Peter Kelso. Thanks for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. Before we get started today, we wanted to advise that this episode contains extremely graphic descriptions and discusses crimes against children, alongside sensitive topics around the LGBTQI plus communities, which during this time in the late 70s and 80s were viewed in a different light, an archaic light really, from a modern standpoint. Nevertheless, we thought it best to point these things out up front and encourage our listeners to exercise discretion if choosing to listen to this episode. Today, unfortunately, we go deeper and darker again into a turbulent time of South Australia's history. The state and its capital Adelaide was already reeling off the back of child disappearances, presumed abduction and murders, that we've discussed in previous episodes this season. The state had also just suffered its worst series of serial murders to that point, when what was effectively a graveyard was discovered near the town of Truro in 1978. We'll discuss that case in more detail next week, but this week we wanted to tie a bow in the linked series of crimes we've been discussing in the past handful of episodes. And this all culminates in the profiling of one of the prime suspects in those cases. Today, we'll see what made this guy tick. And not just him. If you believe the popular theory, he was just one of several in a family of sexual sadists who preyed on young men in the late 70s and early 80s, abducting them off the streets, torturing them, and ultimately murdering them.
10th of May, 1972, Adelaide, South Australia. Professor George Duncan and his friend, Roger James, were walking along the banks of the River Torrens, enjoying each other's company. George was a university lecturer, and he was also gay. And at the time, this was a crime in Australia. As George and Roger walked along the river, they were suddenly attacked by a group of men. They threw George and Roger into the dark, fast-flowing waters of the Torrens. George Duncan, unfortunately, drowned. He only had one lung, so physically he succumbed to the current relatively quickly. His friend Roger broke his ankle upon being thrown into the river. Despite his injury, Roger managed to struggle his way back to the water's edge and claw his way up the riverbank. Roger, scared that the men who threw him in might come back to get him, desperately sought help as he clambered along the bank, and he found it. A passing motorist stopped to help Roger James, a good Samaritan, a man who, ten years later, would commit a crime that would see his name carved into Australian true crime history as one of the most sadistic and brutal murderers our country has ever seen. And his name was Bevan Spencer von Einem. Adelaide in the 1970s wasn't the same city that it is today, and we've covered a few details surrounding that in the past handful of episodes, but of particular relevance to this tale is that having a gay sexual orientation was still a crime back in this time. That would change a few years after George Duncan's death in 1975, when homosexuality was decriminalised. Prior to this, it wasn't uncommon for gay men to be assaulted in a similar manner to how George Duncan and Roger James were, but that would slowly change as the 70s rolled along and the free love movement well and truly in effect. Gay-friendly bars and clubs would pop up across the city, places like the Duke, the Buck and the Mars Bar. Two former police officers of the South Australian Vice Squad were eventually charged with Professor George Duncan's manslaughter, but were ultimately acquitted. And it was against this backdrop of an evolving Adelaide that young 16-year-old Alan Barnes would find himself on the 17th of June, 1979. The day beforehand, Alan had stayed the night at a friend's house in the northwestern suburb of Cheltenham. After they awoke late around midday, the pair ate some fried eggs before heading to Grand Junction Road. They attempted to hitchhike back to Alan's home in Salisbury, but struck out, so Alan's friend decided to part ways with him and head back to his own home, the thought being that Alan would have more luck scoring a lift on his own. And without seeing his friend, I can see that. One person always presents as a less risk, and Alan Barnes was a good-looking, slim young man with long blonde hair and a witty demeanour. It was the 70s. Alan was experimenting with lifestyle choices, had recreational drugs at his disposal, and by all accounts, he had a bright future ahead of him. Unfortunately, at some point during his trip, Alan disappeared. The following day, his mother Judy reported him missing when he hadn't returned home. Police appeals to the public would yield few clues, except for one caller who thought they'd spotted Alan on Grand Junction Road not long after the friend had departed, and he was getting into a white Holden which had three or four people inside. One week later, on the 24th of June 1979, a couple bushwalking at the South Para Reservoir had parked their motorcycle and jumped over the fence to head down for a stroll. 
As they walked down the old road, they came across a dead body, and it was that of Alan Barnes. The South Parra Reservoir is nestled amongst the Adelaide Hills to the northeast of the city, and there is an old bridge in the reservoir, or was back then, that was replaced by a larger, newer bridge. When the initial reports of the discovery came out, it suggested the unidentified body was that of a male in their 20s, but Ellen's mother Judy had a gut feeling that it was her son. In this clip, she explains how that transpired. There was a report come over the television that a man in his 20s, his body had been found at the Little Parra. And I was just so sure. I picked up the phone and said, it's not a man in his 20s, he's 16 years old and he's my son. And if you look on the back of his watch, there'll be an engraving that was his Christmas present. And um, not long after that, the police came and our doctor and my husband went down and identified him. It was Alan. It's Alan. Barnes had been brutally assaulted and tortured. In what will become a pattern as we go along in this case, he died effectively from blood loss caused by an anal injury. It was said that he would have died within half an hour from the wounds he'd suffered. The killer or killers had dumped his body over the bridge with the intention to hit the water where the body would have become submerged beneath the surface and most likely never found in the mud at the bottom of the reservoir. He had been dead a few days before his body was dumped. Interestingly, toxicology would show Alan had ingested a drug Noctec prior to his death. This drug was used at the time to help people with sleeping issues. So this led to the police believing he'd been drugged, most likely with a laced drink because Alan also had alcohol in his system. Alan's clothes, despite him dying from massive blood loss, were clean of any blood traces. Police would discover that the clothes he was wearing weren't even his clothes. His body had been washed clean and he'd been redressed in someone else's clothing. So the whole method of this killing was very dark, disturbing and unusual. Police were somewhat used to finding murder victims in South Australia by this time, but this wasn't typical by any stretch. And the uniqueness of this murder made police initially believe this was somehow personal – that the killer knew Alan Barnes. But this line of inquiry was a dead end and the police could only piece together a rough timeline of events prior to Alan's disappearance and that he and his friends had been spotted at some of those aforementioned venues. On Tuesday the 28th of August, just two short months later, a local worker with the Department of Marine and Harbours spotted a black trash bag floating amongst the jagged rocks at low tide near Mutton Cove in Port Adelaide. The worker had been planning on going out fishing, however, the gruesome discovery of what turned out to be a dismembered corpse would halt these plans. The body would eventually be identified as that of 25-year-old Neil Muir. Muir was a dashing young man with dark blonde shoulder-length hair and a chiselled face. He lived on Carrington Street in Adelaide in a DOS house, which was essentially cheap or free lodging for people of no fixed address. He was known to move around a bit and had been wandering a somewhat dark path for a while by this time. He was known to be addicted to heroin. He had tried to clean up his act in recent times, but inevitably had strayed and gone back to his addiction. In addition to his drug use, as often becomes a common theme, it was suggested in research that Muir had engaged in sex work to support his habit. 
He had been seen on the night of August 27th, the night before his body was discovered, at some of the earlier mentioned hotspots, the Buck and the Duke, apparently in quite an intoxicated state. The discovery of Muir's body and subsequent details of his murder can only be described in one word, gruesome. So a heads up, the post-mortem details, while relevant to the case, are certainly not for the faint of heart. Like Alan Barnes, Muir also died from massive blood loss caused by a devastating anal injury. He'd also received a huge blow to the head, but this hadn't killed him, probably rendered him unconscious. Medical examiners surmised that a tapered glass bottle, like a long neck, had been inserted into Muir's anus during the brutal assault, leading to likely shock and unconsciousness from the sheer pain, and then finally death from the loss of blood. Muir's body had been dismembered, his organs removed, and his legs and arms shoved into his chest cavity. His muscles had been stripped from the bones to make them fit, his genitals had been mutilated, and a testicle was missing. Areas where he had tattoos had also had the flesh stripped, his thumbs and fingers removed, and he was decapitated, but his head had been tied back onto his torso by a rope that passed through his mouth and out the neck. So extremely brutal, needless to say, and all within 24 hours from when he'd last been seen. And the killer had intended for this body not to be found, like Alan Barnes, but in that case had missed the water and in this instance had seemingly limited knowledge of tides. So the police had a couple of avenues to look into here. There'd seemingly be an attempt to conceal Muir's identity, but it was also quite psychopathic in nature, the dismemberment of his body. The surgical element left many hypothesising on a medical professional's involvement. Muir, as we said, also had a drug problem, and with that, owed some money around town, it was said. But at the end of all of these lines of inquiry, the police investigation would stagnate. The obvious lines of inquiry weren't turning up any useful information, so the police broadened their search and began speaking with people in extended social circles within the gay community. And it was around this time that police would get a handful of calls from members of the public implicating a couple of men. One was a name we know and will continue to grow more familiar with, Bevan Spencer von Einem. The other was that of Dr Peter Leslie Milhouse. Now, von Einem's name had come up before with police. The first time, as we covered in the introduction, was in a positive light when he'd helped a struggling Roger James from the banks of the Torrens after he and George Duncan were attacked back in 1972. The second time was from a tip-off from an anonymous source who had implied that Von Einem knew something about or was involved in the murder of Alan Barnes. And it took some time for police to get talking with Von Einem about his alleged involvement with Barnes's murder. Not only was it an isolated report about him, amongst many the police had, but he wasn't the type on the surface. But interestingly, upon talking with Von Einem at his home in what was likely just a routine inquiry at first, Detective Rod Hunter was taken aback when Von Einem mentioned the investigation into the murder of Neil Muir. He openly disclosed to the detective that he had had a fleeting relationship with the 25-year-old around four years earlier. Von Einem mentioned he'd seen Muir in the days before the last sighting of him too. So Detective Hunter's ears were understandably pricked at this detail. You've got one guy here associated with both of the murder victims. But like we said... Not only did Von Einem not seem the type, he was this soft-looking middle-aged accountant who lived with his mother, 
but the police had another hot lead that at the time made more sense on the surface, particularly when considering the line of thought that Neil Muir's body had been dissected by someone with surgical knowledge. And this was the second tip police had received implicating another man in the murders. And they'd received two calls about this man named Dr. Peter Leslie Milhouse. The calls came from people who were known associates of the victims and were also known drug users. Dr. Milhouse was in rehab at Osmond House when police went to question him about the murder of Neil Muir. He was overtly uncooperative, refusing to speak with police at all. So the police went off piecing together what they could of Milhouse's life and alleged involvement with Muir. Milhouse was 45 years old, originally from Mount Gambier, but now lived in North Adelaide in Stanley Street in a row of attached cottage-type houses. He was single, gay, drove a 10-year-old Holden sedan, was known to abuse alcohol and was apparently related to former South Australian Attorney General Robin Milhouse, who was also an active Army Reserves officer and would later become a judge. So Milhouse seemingly had some connections in higher class circles than that of Neil Muir, yet he'd known Muir for going on four years. Police couldn't find any evidence that Milhouse and Muir had engaged in a sexual relationship and that Milhouse had supplied drugs to the younger man. But these were the alleged links, and it was said Milhouse was concerned around this time that he'd be caught for supplying prescription drugs to other drug users as well. But on the night of Muir's disappearance, that Sunday in August, Milhouse was with Muir having drinks at the Hope Inn Sports and Social Club. They'd also been spotted together at the Mediterranean Hotel together in the days beforehand, and a bouncer recalled escorting Muir out of the hotel on the Monday, drunk as a skunk and falling asleep on his feet. Coincidentally, Peter Milhouse had gone on a drinking binge over the next few days after Muir's disappearance and on the night of had sought counsel from a well-known criminal lawyer named Peter Way. After this, he'd immediately checked himself into rehab. Police detectives initially went on circumstantial tips that witnesses had seen garbage bags similar to those Neil Muir was found in at Milhouse's residence and apparently the cord used to tie Muir's head to his torso resembled the original clothesline wire at Milhouse's property, which was said to have been since replaced with twine. Initial searches of Milhouse's home also found traces of blood evidence in his bathroom that had been thoroughly cleaned, and his cleaner told police she had indeed cleaned what appeared to be blood spots off the floor but the trace evidence wasn't enough to get a blood grouping to match to Neil Muir. There was also a band-aid found amongst Neil Muir's remains, which had fibres that were said to be similar to the fibres found within Milhouse's home. Although that couldn't be conclusively proven, they were just similar. Nevertheless, there was enough circumstantial evidence for police to charge Milhouse with Neil Muir's murder. And they did it and went to trial in 1980. Milhouse denied ever knowing Neil Muir, which contradicted witness statements that connected the pair. But the prosecution case against Milhouse was weak. They couldn't establish clear motive, and there were reasonable or at least possible explanations for much of the circumstantial evidence. Milhouse actually took the stand in his trial also, and was cross-examined for three days. Unusual for a defendant to do that in a murder trial, but seemingly it helped his case. In the end, other than the fact that he was a doctor and might have known Muir and spent some time with him, there wasn't much for the prosecution to rely on. In the judge's own words, it would have taken a very brave jury indeed to convict. 
Peter Milhouse was acquitted of all charges when the jury found him not guilty and he walked out of the court a free man, returning to Mount Gambier with his parents thereafter. And if the investigation had stagnated before, over the next two years, it would become almost completely dormant, with no new leads or lines of inquiry opening up for police. On Saturday the 27th of February 1982, Mark Langley had been at a friend's 18th party in the Windsor Gardens when he and two friends, Ian and Paula, left to go for a drive. They ended up parked on War Memorial Drive near the River Torrens when Mark and Ian got into an argument. Ian would later recall it was possibly over cigarettes, but it could also have been the two young peacocks riffing on each other with the single Paula nearby. Mark was a handsome 18-year-old young man, full of confidence, and he had a bright future ahead of him. The immature argument was at odds with his otherwise manly exterior. Mark stomped off into the darkness, and Ian and Paula drove off. They later returned to the area, hoping to encounter Mark and pick him back up, but they couldn't spot him. He'd vanished into the darkness. And this was pretty early morning hours at this time, around 1.30-2am. Mark didn't return home the following day and his parents understandably became quite concerned and contacted the police later that evening to report him missing. Police turned over very few clues after first contacting partygoers and Mark's friends to see where he might be. Ian and Paula relayed the last time they'd seen him after the argument and this was the last known time Mark Langley had been seen. Nine days later, a local resident in the Adelaide Hills area of Summertown, which is near Mount Lofty, was spraying blackberries when he discovered the body of a young man in the scrub. It was Mark Langley. He was wearing the same clothes he'd worn on the night he disappeared, but once again seemed to have been washed and redressed, with the exception of his shirt, just his cardigan and jeans. The exposed parts of Mark's body had begun to putrefy in the hot Adelaide sun, which indicated to examiners he'd been there for a number of days, likely killed and dumped within 48 hours of his abduction. So there are immediate similarities here with the murders of both Barnes and Muir from a couple of years back, but they didn't end there. It was also determined that Mark Langley had died from massive blood loss arising from extensive anal injuries and his body had been mutilated. And one aspect of this mutilation stood out to police examiners immediately. An area from the navel down to just above the pubic area had been surgically cut open and sealed shut with three-ply polyester filament and taped with Johnson & Johnson surgical tape. The area had also been shaved and part of Mark's small bowel had been removed. So this pretty quickly led police to once again theorising the killer or killers may have had some surgical knowledge. It also indicated the killer had likely conducted the impromptu surgery not as torture like some of the other mutilations, but as a way to cover tracks. Perhaps something had been broken off or lost inside of this area of Mark's body and the killer wanted to retrieve it before dumping the body. Medical examiners would also make another very interesting discovery that would further link to the previous cases. The restricted sedative hypnotic drug Mandrax, also sold in the US under the brand Quaalude, was discovered in Langley's system. This drug was quite popular in the 70s recreational clubbing scene and was often referred to in Australia as either Mandrakes or Mandy's, but it was also prescribed around this time for people who suffered from insomnia. It was an interesting detail that would become relevant later, The police, for now, were gravely concerned about the re-emergence of what now appeared to be either one or a group of serial killers. 
Here's a clip of Mark Langley's father, David, with his thoughts on what to call this alleged group. Animals. An animal would not do that. You know, all these years I've been trying to think of what to call them. You do not call them men, you do not call them people, and you do not call them animals. What do you call them? And for 25 years, I could not think of a name to call them. You know, to address the press. What do I say to them? What do I call these people? They're not human. So as we said, there was two years between the murders of Neil Muir and Mark Langley. And this two-year hiatus prompted police to wonder if it was, indeed, a hiatus at all. After all, extended downtimes like this didn't fit the developing profile of what a serial killer or group of killers was. So this encouraged police to review a backlog of missing persons cases, and it would only be a few short months later in June they'd get confirmation that their hunch was correct. On the 27th of August 1971, 14-year-old Peter Stogneff had decided to wag school, a pretty common occurrence for many kids in Peter's age range. Peter's family were middle class and lived in a suburb in Adelaide's north in a reasonably new area. Peter had possibly gone to the Tea Tree Plaza early in the morning, a place where many youths congregated at the time, but he returned home at some point during the day to drop his school bag off in the garage before heading back out to meet his friend Daniel at Adelaide's Rundle Mall. But Peter didn't arrive to meet Daniel and he wasn't seen again. The young man, bright-faced with a wide smile and dark brown hair, had seemingly vanished. So this was about six months before Mark Langley would go missing and be discovered murdered. A further four months later, so 10 months after Peter's disappearance, an undoubtedly harrowing and distressing time for his family, a farmer in the Two Wells area would make a horrifying discovery on the 23rd of June, 1982. Being winter now, the farmer had recently burned off much of his unwanted scrub, brush and foliage, and several days later was walking back over the remains of the fire piles to see if there was anything that hadn't gone in the fire, which would simply spread back into mineral earth. And it was then he discovered charred skeletal remains. A pathologist named Derek Pounder examined the remains and believed, through the skull size and shape alongside dental aspects, that the remains were that of young Peter Stogneff. Obviously, having been burned in a bonfire, there was little genetic material of forensic value. It was mostly just bones left. But it was clear that the body of the young 14-year-old had been cut up, dissected, in a manner not dissimilar to how Neil Muir had been treated. So this led to the connection with the other crimes and seemingly evolving MO of the killer or killers, who moved on from their failed attempts of dumping bodies into water to simply dumping them on roadsides in bushland. I think it's important to note there's still some conjecture about the identification of Peter Stogneff, and it seemed like his parents still aren't sure it was him. But police sure seem convinced, and it's in everything published about this case, that the remains are that of Peter Stogneff. And so he was subsequently included in the victim list of what was, evidently to the public, a serial killer or killers at this point. And in the public and media, things really began to turn into a frenzy at this point.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. On the 5th of June 1983, Rob Kelvin had been at the local park kicking the footy with his eldest son Richard and his mate Boris. Rob eventually left the boys to their own devices and went back home, with Richard set to follow a short time later to have dinner with the family. The Kelvins were a seemingly wealthy family, they lived in a nice new part of Adelaide's north in a modern townhouse, but they were very down-to-earth people it was said not highfalutin or splashing cash for the world to see. Rob Calvin was a well-known local television news anchor on Channel 9 News, having had a distinguished career in Adelaide prior to that as a radio journalist, so he had a high profile. His eldest boy, Richard, was tall, blonde-haired, good-looking young man. He was 15 and had a girlfriend who he was quite smitten with, They spoke every day just about and had even discussed becoming engaged in a few years when they turned 18. Richard was wearing the family's dog collar around his neck during this kick to kick as a bit of a joke. So Richard and Boris, once they'd finished having a kick, walked along Ward Street and turned onto O'Connell, where the pair ran into two friends of theirs, both named Frank, who, along with Boris, jumped onto a bus as it pulled up at the stop leaving Richard to make the short walk of 400 metres or so back to his house. But Richard Calvin never made it home for dinner. Like four others before him, he simply vanished, with no eyewitnesses to indicate what might have happened to the young man. But because of the profile of his father Rob and the recently increased public awareness around the other four murders, Richard's disappearance was immediately linked and hypothesised as being a similar situation – which could have a similarly gruesome outcome. Detective Bob O'Brien had recently been seconded to the major crime unit within the state police force, soon after Peter Stogneff's remains had been discovered. At the time, he was a young and ambitious detective and was quickly assigned to investigate the murders and, in turn, the disappearance of Richard Calvin. O'Brien knew that things had to be done right – Not that they'd been done wrong previously, but this was a more high-profile case than the other disappearances and murders through Richard's father, Rob, being somewhat of a local celebrity. The police had to walk down all avenues of inquiry. To begin with, they had to eliminate the possibility that Richard wasn't a runaway. And although Bob O'Brien said in his book this conclusion was reached fairly quickly, it took police two days to door-knock the surrounding area where Richard's friend Boris had last seen him. When they did, it proved fruitful. Witnesses in the local area had heard commotion, shouting, between 5.30 and 6.30pm on the prior Sunday, around the time Richard went missing. One of the witnesses, a local security guard, had a more vivid recollection, saying he'd heard screaming from several people, one being a young voice, presumably Richard's, and one being much higher, possibly that of a woman. 
After the shouting came to an end, a car with a loud exhaust took off. So this really narrowed down the lines of inquiry for the major crime squad. Richard Calvin had been abducted, and from the sounds of things, by several people. The police utilised the public, as they often do in these instances, to appeal for information. Detective O'Brien, one of the lead investigators on the case, had to sift through the incoming information. In one report, an informer claimed that Richard Calvin was being held captive in a caravan in the Adelaide Hills someplace. This was an anonymous tip, but it was all they had. So where do you start with that? Searching the vast, dense area such as the Adelaide foothills? With a helicopter, obviously. O'Brien was present for this search, but unfortunately it yielded no results. Another tip came in claiming they had viewed Richard Calvin in a snuff film, the details of which escaped the caller, but it once again commanded police resources to investigate and yielded no results. But the juicy tips kept flowing in, with a third citizen relaying to police that two men named Mark and Doug were responsible for Richard's abduction and they had been driving a 63EH Holden when doing so. Police put this information out there, hoping it might spark a lead, but it didn't. Police took hair and fibre samples from Richard Calvin's room and some of his school books for handwriting samples should a ransom situation occur, something they couldn't rule out, particularly when considering Rob Calvin's local notoriety. The days turned into weeks, becoming more and more agonising for the Calvin family and frustrating for police. It would be seven weeks later, on the 24th of July, 1983, that the paralysing unknown for the Calvin family would come to an end, and police would finally connect the elusive dots. Trevor Holmes was collecting moss rocks from a scrubland area just outside of Kersbrook, adjacent to the Mount Crawford Forest. It wasn't a long way from where Alan Barnes had been found, about five kilometres. Holmes was traversing an area near a gravel airstrip, The airstrip was said to be used by small crop duster planes that serviced rural and remote areas around the state. And not to get too far off topic, but this isn't the first time we've heard about crop dusters and remote rural locations in South Australia this season. As Holmes walked downhill, he spotted someone lying under the brush. He initially thought it was someone who was injured, but on closer inspection, realised it was in fact a dead body. And Holmes immediately recognised the Channel 9 t-shirt. He knew it was Richard Calvin from the media reports. Police attended the scene and quickly cordoned the area, commencing an extensive search of the area and detailed examination of the crime scene. Richard was curled up in a fetal position, wearing the same clothes that he had the day he disappeared, including the family dog collar. Detective O'Brien was given the task of informing the Kelvin family of the discovery of a young man's body which was likely Richard's, but had to be confirmed through identification. Here's a clip of O'Brien talking about telling Rob and Betty Ann Calvin of their son's murder. It's not an easy task of a police officer, and and I don't think I did it as well as I could have, but how can you do anything like that well? A post-mortem examination of Richard Calvin's body would yield the most details for police yet and bring them a step closer to a half-decent lead. Richard had died from massive blood loss resulting from extensive anal injuries. That much was obvious and immediately linked his fate to that of Barnes, Muir, Stogneff and Langley before him. But it was the other injuries to his head, back, buttocks, specifically the bruising and healing of certain injuries that gave examiners an incredible insight into what had sadly happened to the young man over the past month. 
They were able to determine that Richard Calvin had been held captive and brutally tortured for approximately five weeks prior to his death when he was dumped in the bush near the airstrip. So this is an unimaginable horror that was unique to his case, unfortunately. The other victims, as far as police could tell with the evidence on hand, had suffered equally as brutal but far quicker deaths. Further toxicology would show Richard Calvin too had been pumped full of various sedatives. Noctec, Valium, Amatel, Rehypnol and Mandrax were all discovered in his system. So there wasn't much more needed for police to officially link the murder of Richard Calvin to the other four murders. This killer or killers were now responsible for five murders. Five bodies and few clues other than a clear MO. So other than a long list of reports that were seemingly dead ends, police had to get creative in their thinking. And the place they started was with one consistency that they'd found, the sedatives in the victim's systems. Detective O'Brien and his partner Trevor Kipling chased down this angle and they went to the State Health Commission building to manually trawl through records of prescriptions on file. Specifically, they were looking at scripts for Mandrax. Many of the other drugs, such as Noctec and Rohypnol, were too common, and the likes of Valium was over the counter. Mandrax, however, was a restricted drug and prescriptions for it were monitored. O'Brien and Kipling had only been searching through the files for about an hour when they happened upon a name. A name that was familiar to Kipling from his time in major crimes, but not to O'Brien, who'd only recently come across and hadn't had the disposable time yet to read all of the other associated murder files. But the name piqued Kipling's interest from an early interview with a suburban accountant they'd encountered. Have a look at this, he exclaimed to O'Brien, holding up the copy of the Mandrax prescription bearing the name B. Von Einem. Bevan Spencer Von Einem was a 38-year-old accountant who lived with his mother in a northeastern Adelaide suburb called Paradise. They lived in a typical cream brick, orange-tiled roof, three-bedroom home, very run-of-the-mill. Von Einem was an accountant at a company called Pipeline Supplies, and his exterior matched that occupation. Pale and with a grey comb over, he wore pressed grey slacks, starchy white shirts with a tie and cardigan. He'd been grey since a very young age, which we mentioned in an earlier episode when Von Einem came up, and until recent years as he approached his 40s, he had frequented a hair salon owned by his chum Dennis St. Dennis to put a dark rinse through to restore his youthful appearance. Police had heard of Von Einem a few times by this point and not all sounded the alarm bells. As we covered in the intro, his name first came up in a positive light after helping Roger James from the banks of the Torrens in 1972. But a strange anonymous call had implicated him in the Alan Barnes murder, which led to a routine police visit where Von Einem then linked himself to Neil Muir. Other than this, and this was one tip in many hundred and possibly thousands, there was seemingly nothing in it, nothing to link Von Einem other than he was gay and knew Neil Muir. Until now, the searching for Detective O'Brien and Kipling had paid off and they dug deeper again, finding another case involving Mandrax that they could potentially link to Von Einem. In this case, a young boy was lured back to a house with the promise of alcohol and drugs and was subsequently drugged and sexually assaulted. So not only did the police want to talk to Von Einem about this case, but obviously the murders of Richard Calvin and Mark Langley, both who had Mandrax in their systems post-mortem. O'Brien and Kipling went to Von Einem's house in Paradise and had a chat with him. He immediately clammed up and wanted a solicitor present. 
O'Brien and Kipling had search warrants, but they didn't exercise them just yet. Instead, they asked Von Einem to contact his solicitor and meet them at the station for a statement. He agreed to this and they met shortly after, with Helena Jasinski, his solicitor, present. Von Einem confirmed he'd been prescribed a number of drugs to help him with insomnia, but he stressed he used Rehypnol, had used Mandrax, but in the past, not for 12 months. When detectives probed about his whereabouts on the day Richard Calvin went missing, Von Einem said he was at home in bed with the flu. Immediately, Bob O'Brien thought that was suspicious. Not only did this guy have Mandrax, but he'd lawyered up immediately and gave a limp alibi that proved nothing. But Von Einem didn't have a sharp demeanour. He spoke like his appearance, softly. And he consented to let police search his house and take genetic samples from him for testing. They questioned him directly about the murders of all of the boys and Von Einem answered no to every question, except when asked if he could conceivably do such a thing, to which he responded no adding, because it would be unethical of me. A strange response. They weren't wondering if he'd cooked the books here. This was murder times five. So Von Einem let the police search his house and his vehicle, just one vehicle. He'd had a second, but sold it not long after Richard Calvin's abduction, to a family friend nonetheless, and to prepare it for sale, he'd repainted the trunk. Police found a treasure trove of drugs at Von Einem's house, all of the drugs that have been found in the boys' systems, Mandrax, Rahipnol, Noctec, you name it. One bottle O'Brien found was labelled Uncle Bevan. But it was the location of some of the drugs that was strange. The obscure Mandrax and Noctec were seemingly hidden or at least obscured, not where the other medications were kept, in the glass-mirrored cabinet. And as police left the property after their search, O'Brien noticed another car in the driveway, not Von Einem's Corolla, but it turned out to be the vehicle of a known Adelaide businessman and associate of Von Einem, who we can only legally refer to as Mr R. O'Brien sat back off the house after their search and as night rolled in, Mr R remained at the property until O'Brien left around 1.30am, having confirmed the association between the two men. This guy was now on the suspect list also. Police had another angle to reinvestigate now the Von Einem trail was hot, and that was the initial report made to police back when Alan Barnes was murdered, the anonymous call implicating Von Einem in the first place. So police tracked down this caller, and the number of insights he provided would prove crucial in building the case against Von Einem. We'll refer to this man as Mr B, which is what he's widely reported as. Mr B was in his early 20s, was bisexual and said to be a sex worker. He'd met Bevan Von Einem in 1979, not too long before Alan Barnes was murdered. Together, the pair began picking up young male hitchhikers, claiming to be party-goers, and once the young men had entered the vehicle, Von Einem would offer them a can of beer from the cooler he'd always had on the back seat of his car. These drinks were obviously spiked with many of the drugs that we'd mentioned before, but Mr B wasn't sure of what exactly the drugs were. He went on to name a friend of Von Einem's, Prue Furman, who was a transgender woman who Mr B alleged would host Von Einem and friends of his in exchange for drugs. He also described the unique driveway Von Einem had, which made abducting young men a breeze because of how it was concealed, and he wouldn't be seen by neighbours or his own mother. But he added that Von Einem's mother also went away to stay with relatives quite often, so Von Einem regularly had the run of the joint. 
But the final straw for police was Mr B directly incriminating Von Einem in not only the drugging and abducting, but the sexual assault of young men. He claimed he'd seen Von Einem assault two young men, but that he'd left before things got bad. So he was throwing Von Einem into oncoming traffic here, but minimising his involvement in these abductions and assaults and potential murders. Police could see that, but his testimony and willingness to provide statements was a real ace up the sleeves for police in mounting their case against Von Einem. Police would raid Von Einem's property again, conduct forensic testing on his vehicle, and bolster their case through fibre evidence taken from Von Einem's home. Until this point, Von Einem had denied any wrongdoing or involvement in any of the murders whatsoever, other than knowing who Neil Muir was and possibly driving through the same area at the same time as Mark Langley was abducted. But that had soon changed when this fibre evidence showed that Richard Calvin had been in Bevan Von Einem's house, more specifically his bedroom. Fibres from Richard Calvin's body trace back directly to the floor and bed fibres in Von Einem's bedroom, as well as a cardigan he owned. So this prompted Von Einem, who had previously never seen Richard Calvin, to change his story. Now he had seen him on the evening he had disappeared, but come willingly back with Bevan to his house, where they had chatted and played his harp in his bedroom. Von Einem said Richard told him he'd been having some dramas at school and in his personal life, so he'd comforted him as a friend, then dropped him at a bus stop later that evening and given him $20 for the trip back home. So there you have it. Bevan Spencer von Einem wasn't that bad after all. Case closed. The problem with this dreadful story was it contradicted the witness reports supporting the contention Richard Calvin was taken forcibly against his will, and the fibre evidence that was so fresh it couldn't have been from an eight-week-old encounter with a harp-playing Good Samaritan. Those fibres would have long since dropped off him. And with that, police arrested and charged Bevan Spencer von Einem with the murder of Richard Calvin on the 3rd of November 1983. Police also looked into other suspects that were cropping up, and there were plenty. It was surfacing that there was a potential horde of seemingly normal and sometimes upper-class individuals potentially involved in this circus of murders. But we'll stick to the main facts at this point in time and run through some of these other people towards the end, because there are many. But one prominent suspect who we've mentioned is this Mr R, the local eastern suburbs businessman who'd offered counsel to Von Einem when Bob O'Brien had staked out his house after the search. This guy was also subjected to police raids of his home and business and subsequently surveilled for some time. He wouldn't give a statement to police or much info at all really, other than confirming he was gay, knew Von Einem and maybe attended some of the clubs that we've mentioned along the way. Within Mr R's home was nothing of note, but at his business, which was a two-storey building, on the upper floor, which was mainly used for administrative purposes I take it, there was a small room at the back that contained just a single lonely mattress on the floor. Police took the mattress for testing, but it yielded no clues. But it sure was strange. Mr R was also observed to be a meticulous creature of habit, described as almost obsessive-compulsive in his neatness and everyday coordination and timing. He'd routinely close his business at lunchtime every day and stroll through some of the known beats where gay men would frequently meet before returning to his store later in the afternoon to reopen for business. 
He had a young gay male working for him in the shop and was observed once again at many of the acknowledged hotspots of the time making passes at younger men whenever he'd get the chance. Mr R also had a housemate, a man named Dr Stephen George Woodards, who would later be charged with historic sexual assault offences in 2011 for deeds he'd allegedly committed back in the early 80s. But he'd been suspected by police for a long time before. And we'll talk more about him and others later, as Sean said before. But what this really highlighted to police at the time was this potential circle of deviant older men that Bevan Spencer von Einem was associated with. An exceptional trial of Bevan Spencer von Einem began on Monday the 15th of October 1984. I say unexceptional because the trial itself was no circus, but it had a lot of media interest, as you can imagine. The high-profile nature of the crime and the victim and his family, combined with it being linked in the public eye to the other four previous murders. The general public piled into the viewing gallery of the South Australian Supreme Court packed in like sardines to see the most ordinary man ever be tried for one of the most brutal murders. Von Einem was defended by Helena Jasinski and Barry Jennings. Von Einem claimed that Richard Calvin and he had discussed conflicting feelings the young man had with his sexuality. Rob and Betty Ann Calvin took the stand, staunchly denying that, citing Richard's heterosexuality and his girlfriend, In reality, there was nothing to back up Von Einem's stories. His loose alibis of where he was on the night of Richard Kelvin's body had been dumped were flimsy and disproven. But there were many moving parts to the case for prosecution to conclusively prove murder. On the 2nd of November 1984, the jury retired for around seven and a half hours to consider their verdict, at one point returning to ask the judge what constituted murder. And this greatly worried detectives O'Brien and Kipling, obviously, who thought they might find him not guilty of murder, but guilty of the lesser manslaughter. But in the end, the prosecution's case proved too strong and the jury found Bevan Spencer von Einem guilty of the murder of Richard Calvin. He was sentenced to life in prison at the Yatala Labor Prison. Here's another clip of Detective Bob O'Brien on von Einem's demeanour after being convicted. And he sat in the box passively, no emotion, but he doesn't show any remorse. He, in my mind, doesn't feel guilty at all about his abuse of boys. I'm quite sure he sees nothing wrong with it. And it was Mr B's testimony that proved critical in convicting Von Einem. This really established a third-party view of the man, the predator, outside the views of the police, victim's family and the contrasting supporters in the Von Einem camp. Mr R would be the first to visit Von Einem in prison, offering counsel to his friend again, and he'd continue to visit over the years. Police, try as they might, have been unable to mount enough evidence to charge Mr R in connection with any of the crimes he's alleged to have been involved with. The police would continue to use Mr B in developing their case against Von Einem for his involvement in the other murders, 
particularly that of Alan Barnes and Mark Langley, who'd had the more prevalent drug readings in their systems post-mortem. But this connection wasn't enough on its own. So back to Mr B they went. The issue with him was that his stories were becoming more and more fanciful, and his own sister was providing conflicting testimony to him, pointing to Mr B's unreliability. Mr B would end up throwing Von Einem under the bus with respect to the disappearance of the Beaumont children and the Adelaide Oval abductions of Joanne Ratcliffe and Kirsty Gordon. Mr B stated Von Einem confessed to these crimes to him, saying that he'd taken the Beaumont kids from the beach back to his home where he performed brilliant surgery on them, connecting them up, but when one died during the operation, he killed the other two and dumped them in bushland south of Adelaide. When archived Channel 7 news footage came out, a man was seen who apparently resembled Von Einem somewhat. This was proven not to be him in reality by a facial mapping expert, but once again it thrust Von Einem's name into the limelight in these two cases. Rewards for information leading to prosecution in the cases of Barnes, Muir, Stogneff and Langley increased from a quarter to a half a million dollars, and in 1990, Von Einem was charged with the murders of Alan Barnes and Mark Langley. The prosecution's case, however, too heavily reliant upon the increasingly unreliable Mr B, wilted under the pressure and, inevitably, all charges against Von Einem were dropped so that the case could be bolstered and fought again another day. Mr B would subsequently become a suspect himself in many of the cases and he constantly minimised his involvement, always leaving before things got too serious. But his earlier deals securing himself immunity from prosecution may have well saved him. The former sex worker is said to be a bus driver in Brisbane nowadays. Further cold case reviews opened in 2010 with rewards increasing to $1 million dollars Advanced DNA testing provided slithers of hope over the years, but no evidence strong enough to warrant prosecution against any of the alleged family members has surfaced. A guy named Trevor Peters, who was a gay man and mixed in Von Einem's circle in the late 70s and early 80s, passed away around 2014. Family of Peters were going through his belongings after his death and they stumbled across a diary and within its pages, there were allegations that Von Einem had talked about the abduction of Alan Barnes with his hairdresser, Dennis St. Dennis, and apparently they had taken pictures of Barnes during the week he was missing or being held captive. What held the most weight was the diary contained names, names previously suppressed of other suspects, so your Mr. R and Mr. B, and Peters himself lived only a couple of houses down from Prue Furman, the transgender woman who would host Von Einem and his pals on occasion in exchange for drugs. Prue Furman, it was said, had another one or possibly two transgender housemates who were alleged, as she was, to have become involved in the abductions. One was said to be of Maori descent and the other the sibling of an Olympic athlete. There's some names online that are possibly theirs, but we won't speculate on that. Peter's diary also indicated that Von Einem, St. Dennis, and maybe another mate of theirs, rented an apartment in Adelaide in the late 70s also. So there was some compelling information in this diary, but in the end, nothing that would lead to prosecution of any of the members of the family. And there is a lot of speculation to this day as to who or what the family is. 
The name came from a comment made by a police officer in an interview where he used words to the effect that it'd be good to break up the little family. I don't think we're talking about a Calabrian mafia style of family here. It's highly unlikely this was a tight-knit group of sexual sadists who all knew each other intimately and forged a unified MO. I think we're talking about a loose association of perverts who might have known one another through friends of friends, that type of thing. So whatever the umbrella term you want to use for them, we're going to run through a list of people who've been connected to this dark time in South Australia's history, whether part of this so-called family or not. We've spoken about a few of them already, Von Einem, Dr Peter Milhouse, the local businessman Mr R, and the young sex worker turned informant Mr B. Two who we've only briefly mentioned are Dr Stephen George Woodards, who lived with Mr R, and the hairdresser Dennis St Dennis. St Dennis had a long association with Von Einem. He's been alleged to have been an active participant in some of the crimes. He owned a salon in Hazelwood Park, was rumoured to have rented an apartment with Von Einem in the 70s, but whatever the case, he died in the 90s. Dr Stephen George Woodards, aside from living with Mr R, Woodards was said to have been a lover of Derrance Stevenson, who was a high-profile lawyer back in this time and a known associate of this crew. Stevenson was murdered by his teenage lover, David Sack, in 1979, only a couple of weeks before Alan Barnes was abducted, which is coincidental timing indeed. Stevenson's body was found curled up in a freezer, and it was said that he'd had an interest in Alan Barnes in the time before his murder. Woodards was in court in 2011, answering to allegations of sexual assault of young men back in the early to mid-80s, and last I saw he was living in the Bondi area. He also links tenuously in the sense of being a medical professional, and police hypothesised someone with anatomical and surgical knowledge may have been involved in some of the dissections and mutilations of the murder victims. We mentioned Prue Furman and her housemates. There's a lot of innuendo online potentially connecting her and these housemates based on the female voice that was heard when Richard Calvin was abducted. Plus, I think she's also had her own allegations at one point pertaining to sexual assault. A chiropractor named Gino Luigi Gambardella. He was mates with Von Einem and Derrance Stevenson before he was killed. Gambardella came under fire in the 70s for allegedly picking up and sexually assaulting young men, but he fled to Europe in the 80s when it got too hot for him in Australia. He was actually charged in connection with Stevenson's murder as an accessory after the fact, but that charge was later dropped. Police have subsequently tried to track him down for information, but not sure how that's panned out or where he's at these days. Donald John Storen said to link back to these guys through political circles, he took off to Indonesia and was convicted of pedophilia and sexually assaulting four boys in the mid-2000s. He was a former boxing promoter and last I read at a quick glance, he had been released and deported back to Australia. Peter Liddy, a former magistrate who was convicted of numerous sexual offences against young men in 2001, dating back as far as 1969. Justice wasn't entirely served in Liddy's case. Some of his crimes were so old that the statute of limitations had expired, but he did get a decent whack of 18 years. 
He was eligible for parole this year. As to whether that's transpired or not, I'm not sure. Robert William Simmons, a bookmaker nicknamed Mother Goose for his distinctive gait, he was accused and subsequently acquitted in 2011 of numerous sexual assaults from the 70s through to the 90s. He staunchly denied these allegations and the evidence against him simply didn't hold up with the passage of time. But there were some passionate and adamant alleged victims. So much so that Mother Goose was before another trial in 2018 and was finally found guilty on three counts of unlawful sexual intercourse which took place between September 1994 and March 1995. Rick Marshall, this guy was the host of Super Duper Flying Fun Show back in the 70s. He was convicted of numerous sexual offences against young boys back during this time when he stood trial in 2012. Old, senile and decrepit by this time, Marshall copped a 25-year house arrest sentence. Marshall was linked to another convicted pedophile named Philip Cave, another sexual deviant who preyed upon and farmed out young children to the likes of Marshall and others during this time. Richard Dutton Brown, like Liddy, was a magistrate and also trawled gay beats and hotspots in Adelaide during the 70s and 80s. He was accused of many sexual assaults against young men, but died in 2010 without ever fronting a court to face these allegations. On the 1st of April 2018, a lady named Rachel Vaughan gave an online testimony incriminating her deceased father. Rachel was, I believe, the third child of a man named Alan Maxwell McIntyre. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it should. This guy was a suspect in the disappearance of the Beaumont children, And if we recall, McIntyre implicated Tony Munro, a pedophile who fled to CM Reap in Cambodia before his arrest and extradition. McIntyre's other daughter, Ruth, claimed to have seen the Beaumont children's bodies in Munro's boot and claimed several people had knowledge of this. So Rachel Vaughan is McIntyre's other daughter, Ruth's sister. She was born after this time in 1973 But Rachel made some pretty startling accusations, and these have been supported by McIntyre's son, Andrew, too. Rachel says in this online testimony that her father, Alan McIntyre, or Max as they called him, was effectively the undertaker for the alleged family back during this time. She further goes on to say that she witnessed eight victims that Max disposed of, and that in their Stansbury property, Max had a secret dungeon of sorts, where she, around June 1983, saw Richard Calvin being tortured and sexually assaulted while near death. She also alleged that she saw Louise Bell in the tunnels under her father's property too. If we cast our minds even further back to episode 9 of True Blue, Terror at Salt Creek, Louise Bell was abducted from her Hackham West home in January 1983. A guy named Dieter Fennig was eventually convicted of her murder but his defence team tried to throw Roman Hines under the bus for it after the Salt Creek attack. But according to Rachel's testimony, Louise Bell was alive almost six months later in her father's dungeon performing sexual acts while being filmed. She also noted minor family connections between the Calvins and the McIntyres. And then we circle back to this airstrip crop duster aeroplanes theory that we hear about in the Ratcliffe Gordon abduction, connecting with the remote town of Yatna. Now, Richard Kelvin's body was found alongside an airstrip that serviced these remote locations in South Australia. 
So there's another connection there with a potential pedophile ring that we discussed during that episode a couple of weeks back, in which private investigators put forward theories about many upper-class deviates flying out to the Yatna area to have their way with young abducted children. I think we've seen in this episode that's certainly plausible when you look at the multiple doctors and magistrates, an accountant and a respected businessman implicated in these activities. I just wanted to play one last clip, and this is Judy, Alan Barnes's mother, followed by David, Mark Langley's father, both who we heard from earlier. You shouldn't play favourites with your children, but Alan was a favourite. You couldn't help but love him. He had this cheeky personality and he always made me laugh. He always made all of us laugh. Yeah, we loved him. Yeah. I think being a father, it's my job to provide and to protect. And anybody would take that away, either way. I haven't done my job and I don't feel I've done my job, you know, because I haven't protected my children, you know, and that's the part what really got me down a lot, you know, because of the protection side. You're not a real father if you can't do that sort of thing. I just wanted to play that because it really hit home for me hearing that, how these brutal murders impacted these families and what these monsters not only took away from them, but the ongoing heartache they caused too. To the Calvin family, we hope Richard rests in peace, and to the Muir, Barnes, Stogneff and Langley families, we hope that one day justice will be served and your boys too are at peace. Yeah, definitely. Um, so my thoughts on this case, I mean, there were so many suspects here and it spanned such a long time really. The idea that there were so many people involved and working together or somewhat connected to commit these crimes is so chilling. I also think that there is an element of hate crime here or at least that the crimes are related to the perpetrators hating themselves and taking it out on men around them or some kind of psychological aspect like that. A few of the early victims were reported to have been washed and redressed and I went down a Google rabbit hole of trying to figure out what kind of pathology that indicated about a murderer but I couldn't find anything. When I was first reading about this case, the motivation seemed somewhat obvious. The first two men were gay and the crimes were brutal. Genitals mutilated, body parts severed and things put back inside chest cavities. That kind of killing isn't simply done to finish someone off. They were driven by hate or a lot of feelings at the least. The suffering and the punishment seemed just as crucial to the crime and each one was done with so much emotion and fury. But the following three victims we know of weren't gay, so the psychological motivations seemed way less obvious or straightforward at least. I do know that you don't do what these people did to someone without having some very strong feelings towards them, what they represent or who they are. I guess what that is, we'll never know. This case just makes me so sad for so many reasons. So little justice and just a trail of absolute destruction. So it's another dark ending and another tale where there's just a smidgen of justice with Von Einem getting what he deserved, but the other four murders of Alan Barnes, Neil Muir, Peter Stogneff and Mark Langley are all still technically unsolved. 
their families are still living with that, coping with the loss, and knowing that there was in all likelihood many more people involved with their son's deaths than just Bevan von Einem. It's hypothesised that the family could be responsible for 70, 80 or even over 100 attacks where they lured, drugged and sexually assaulted young men and possibly women too back during this time. And the missing persons, long-term missing children, the unidentified remains that Susie Ratcliffe is pushing for retesting, you know, there could be many more victims of the family out there that we don't know about. Bevan Spencer von Einem wasn't a criminal mastermind. He was actually quite a dullard, if you look at how he got caught. He implicated himself numerous times, was openly caught with the drugs, placed himself in the areas. He might have been somewhat of a ringleader, perhaps, but he will go down in our country's history books as one of the most despicable human beings that Australia has ever seen. That pretty much sums it up, I think. Um, So, moving on. Do you have a happy thought, Sean? I did have written down that it's my birthday on Friday, so that's somewhat happy, I guess. But you also gave me an early birthday present, so thank you for that. I did, Chloe I did. bought me an awesome coffee cup tonight, so thanks. Sure, that's a better one. <laughs> Sean's um, happy place is not doing happy thoughts. You much prefer <laughs> to um, go another way. If anyone is um, one of our patrons, they'd know what happens over there. Um, but for now, we'll keep it with the happy thoughts. Um, mine is that I realised last week that I have a bunch of weddings coming up and I love a wedding and I will 100% cry at each one because people loving each other is so good and I'm ready for it. So that's my happy thought. <laughs> no, that's good. This is a far more positive way to end. I think we'll keep the happy thoughts on the main feed. <laughs> yes, we have discussed that. <laughs> yeah. no, that's awesome. Um, so if you have any case suggestions, feedback or questions, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime Dash Podcast, or find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $2 per month, you'll get bonus episodes, case updates, debriefs, blooper reels, and much more to come. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us a lot and helps other people find the show as well. Thank you so much to everyone who reviewed us this week. So that ties a bow in this series of dark and disturbing cases in this past half a dozen episodes that we've done. We'll be sticking in South Australia for the last couple of episodes of this season. Next week, we'll be back to chat about the Truro murders. Thanks again for listening, folks, and uh, we'll catch you all then. Bye.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.